Today, in this third talk, we will speak on the topic of Samati Pawana. Samati Pawana. This can be translated in two ways. One way is the development of Samati. The other way is development by means of Samati. So Samati Pawana in both of these meanings is what we will be discussing here today. Of course, in other systems, religions, and traditions, there are various kinds of samati, pawana. And so today, we have to define our topic a bit more specifically and say that we will be talking especially about samati, pawana in Buddhism. So this is Samati Pawana according to Buddhist principles. If we look deeply into the way things are, we'll see that Samati or concentration is necessary for any activity or task to be successfully completed. To do anything properly, there must be a sufficient amount of samati. If you look even, for example, at a monkey that jumps from tree to tree or from branch to branch, to make that jump, the monkey needs a certain amount of concentration. Or for birds to fly in whatever direction, to make their turns and swoops correctly, they need samati. And for a fish to swim around and be able to capture any insect which has fallen into the water in order to use that insect as food, that fish must also use concentration. If we observe things in this way, we'll notice that samati is necessary even for animals. But this, these examples we've just given are merely a natural, ordinary kind of samati, the concentration that arises instinctually. This is not samati which has been trained or developed. Nonetheless, we can see it in all animals and in all living things. Also in children, we can see quite easily that samadhi is absolutely necessary. Even when children play, for example, whatever, there are many little toys that children have where they try and put something into another thing or whatever it is. And to, to use these toys or play with them, there takes, it takes concentration of a certain amount. Or when, when children throw stones at something, it takes concentration for them to hit the target. Or when they 
they shoot at things with a slingshot. All of these activities take concentration if they are to be done with any success. Then at school, a child needs samadhi to study, to memorize different dates and facts, the thinking, the ability to think, reason, and make decisions, to do arithmetic, and the other things that a child learns in school. All of these take samadhi. So even in a, in a human being, even in the early <coughs> stages of life, we see that samadhi is necessary, although it is still merely the natural samadhi that arises instinctually. Samadhi is necessary in all activities, all tasks, and any kind of work. If our work is to be of any success, we need concentration. Whatever job we do, the way we earn a living, the way we acquire food, clothing, and other necessities of life, all of these things require concentration if they are to be done successfully. This is true in all aspects of life, in all the different areas of human life and experience, especially in the area of religion. In religious or spiritual practice, samadhi is absolutely necessary. If this work or spiritual practice to be successful, there must be concentration. So the various things that spiritual people are doing in monasteries, ashrams, temples, and places around the world, these activities all require samadhi. Now in religious practice, the more samadhi there is, the more successful the practice. The results of the practice, the success, is, is um, commensurate to the amount of concentration. Now when we talk about samadhi in this way, you'll begin to see that there are two duties regarding samadhi. The first duty is that of samadhi pavana, of developing samadhi. In order to have sufficient samadhi, it must be developed. And so this is the first duty. The second one then is to use that concentration that has been developed. Whatever amount of concentration is available is there then it is to be used in the various activities and, and work of life. So there are these two duties. One, the development of samadhi, its training, and second, the use of it. A cat, for instance, is unable to catch a mouse without concentration. For the cat to do this 
this business of its life, it needs concentration. For a cat, that concentration is there instinctually. A cat naturally has that level of samadhi which it needs to catch a mouse. And so a cat can be satisfied with that level of concentration. It can, it can stop at that point. But for humans, this isn't sufficient. That natural instinctual samadhi is not enough. And therefore, it must be developed. We have to train samadhi using the methods we call samadhi pawana. This is the way it is for human beings. We can't just settle for the natural instinctual concentration. In ancient times, long, long ago, people realized the importance of concentration. They accepted its value, and so there were people who searched for methods and techniques of training samadhi. And so long, long ago, various methods were found and developed for practicing and training samadhi. They became very good at this until it was common knowledge and accepted by everyone that, that concentration and its development were important things. And so there were many people going off into the woods, the mountains, into quiet, secluded places in order to train samadhi. We call these munis, rishis, yogis, hermits, sages, whatever. Various ascetics out in the wild working very much to develop that power of mind called concentration. They came across a variety of methods and became very, very skillful in these things. All this took place even before the Buddha's time. Before the Buddha's time, there were many, many people who were knowledgeable and skillful in developing concentration. The word yogi, or the, the Thai pronunciation yogi, means someone who is harnessed to the yoke. And this, in this case, it is to harness oneself, to yoke oneself to, to the meditation object in order to develop concentration. So, the yogi is one who is practicing samadhi pawana specifically to develop stronger and stronger concentration. This is one approach to samadhi pawana. The other approach is that of the muni. The muni is one who is using samadhi in order to focus upon truth. The muni uses the concentrated mind to search for truth in order to see truth. And so muni means one who knows, or we could say a sage. So these are the two different duties 
of samadhi bhavana, one emphasizing the development of samadhi, the second the use of it in order to understand truth more deeply. Now, whenever either of these approaches are completed, then one becomes sita. Sita means one who is successful, one who has finished the work. And so there is the, the yogi who has successfully completed the samati pavana in that aspect, or the muni who has completed it in the muni aspect or approach. Both of these develop into sita. A real sita is successful in both aspects. And this, these sita are the ones who people would search out for to seek in order to ask for teaching and advice. Sita, or ones who are successful, who have finished, are, have completed the work, can be found in all religions and all traditions. And so we can see these three aspects now to samati pavana, that of the yogi, that of the muni, and that of the sita. In ancient India, there used to be the old custom that all young men would spend a period of time developing concentration, doing samati pavana, before they would take up the family life, before they would get married and have children. They would do what was necessary to train in the way of samati pavana. This tradition also used to occur in Thailand. It's a custom that has died away for not, not very long ago. And it used to be that young men would go off to develop concentration in order to have certain abilities and kind of magical powers that they thought would be useful in their life ahead. This used to be quite common. Now some of them, of course, would use these abilities in improper ways. They would do ugly, evil things with them. But these, could also, these abilities could also be used for the benefit of others. This was an old custom which had certain benefits, but nowadays it, it has died out. Now, the reason we bring up this example is because it shows that for a long time it has been commonly accepted that concentration is a very, very useful thing. That when one has the ability to develop concentration, then any task can be done successfully. So it used to be that people would go off to develop concentration because it made them very skillful. They were quite good at whatever they set out to do. They could shoot a gun well, or shoot arrows, or sword fight, or box, or wrestle, or whatever 
kind of self-defense that they would use. And their, their work would be most successful when it was done with concentration. Even nowadays we find in the advertisements for TM, for Transcendental Meditation, where they advertise that this will help one to, to, play, to play sports more successfully, to be a more successful worker, or whatever one is doing. They're saying that TM will help one to do those things with greater success. This just shows that the various uses that samadhi can be put to in life and we bring them up to give you a fuller understanding and appreciation of concentration. In Japan, which we all know is a highly developed industrial country, to the degree that now many of the older European and North American countries are getting afraid of Japan's technological abilities, in, in the big companies in Japan, when they hire new employees, especially for important positions, they prefer to hire people who have had training in Zen. They prefer employees with Zen training. Zen is the same thing that we're calling Samati, except that Zen is a little more than that because it's not just regular concentration, it's sudden concentration, concentration that is immediate, spontaneous, can be used and applied very, very quickly and suddenly. This is just another example of the great importance and power of concentration. This is widely recognized in Japan. And so we could go on and on with many examples, all of which merely point out how samati is necessary in all aspects of life, whether driving a car, walking, feeding oneself, doing any kind of work, even playing in sports or various hobbies, such as taking photographs that we entertain ourselves with. Each and every one of these depends on samati if they are to be done successfully. So we can, we could go on and on, but we will just summarize this by, by saying that samadhi is necessary in all aspects of life. Samadhi is essential for correct living. Now we come to the words in Buddhism. These words are important because, as we already mentioned, various forms of samati pavana were, were already highly developed and well-known in India, in various different traditions and religions. In those times, even before the Buddha, they had developed the powers of concentration to the degree known as the ruba jhanas, Jhanas are usually called the absorptions. These are very, very high levels of concentration where the mind is as if absorbed into 
its object. The rupa jhanas are when some kind of material object is used, such as the breathing. When there is a material object as the base of the concentration, and then the mind becomes very, very concentrated upon that, the state known as the rupa jhanas will arise. And there are four of them which are successfully, successively more refined and powerful. These were known before the Buddha's time. They also developed what are known as the arupa jhanas, the non-material absorptions, in which the object was, was various immaterial objects which were quite refined and allowed even higher states of concentration, the highest of which is called neither percept the the absorption of neither perception or non-perception, a state of concentration that is so so refined that in it there is neither perception nor non-perception. This was the highest level of absorption or of concentration known before the Buddha's time. When the Prince Sitata left home and started studying with the various ascetics, he was trained in these various kinds of absorptions until he was able to achieve the highest absorption known at that time, which was neither perception nor non-perception. This is the highest degree of concentration that is attainable by a human being. At this point, the Buddha-to-be found that even this high state of concentration, although it itself was very, very nice, was not the end of the spiritual life. And so the Buddha, the prince, went on to discover what we could call the use of samadhi. Instead of just developing concentration, he saw the need to apply concentration, to use the power of concentration in order to cut through the defilement. And this was the, the great step forward that the Buddha took, was not only developing concentration, but then using it to cut through all the defilements. And in doing so, this is what allowed the total liberation of the human mind, by liberating it from defilements. This use of highly developed samadhi to destroy the defilements is called vipassana. Vipassana means to look and look and look until seeing, until clearly seeing, to just keep looking, keep looking, until seeing clearly the truth of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Or most of all to say, to keep looking until directly realizing, clearly seeing the truth of datata, suchness. When suchness is perceived, then the defilements cannot arise. 
and this perception of suchness can destroy all defilements. So this is the vipassana discovered. This was the great step forward. And this is what is specifically meant by samati bhavana in Buddhism. If it's truly Buddhist samati bhavana, then it is the use of the power of concentration in order to cut through the defilement. When the goal is aimed specifically at the ending of all dukkha, then it is truly Buddhist. If concentration is used in other ways, such as to develop magical powers, then that is not really Buddhist. That's outside the, the path of Buddhism. Or even using concentration in ordinary worldly matters. This isn't really Buddhist, or at least it's not directly Buddhist samati pawana. It's indirect. For any concentration practice to be truly Buddhist, it is when we use concentration that has been developed in order to cut through the defilement, in order to end all dukkha. This is the meaning of the word in Buddhism. Now let's look at the word samati specifically, or it's more often pronounced by Europeans samadhi or samati. The word samati is made up of two roots, the root sama and ati. Sama, ati. These two roots together mean to be established securely, to be firmly rooted, to be consistently well established, to be grounded, firmly rooted and established in a way that there's no wavering or shaking. And also that is constant, it's, it's not changing, it's not, it's consistent, it's, it's um, secure and steady. So steady steadfastness or steady firmness and establishment of mind is the meaning of samadhi. So that was the word samadhi or concentration according to its etymology, according to the letters. Now for the its, act, its meaning. The meaning of samadhi is for the mind to be firmly established on one thing. When the mind is locked onto something in a way that is completely steady and secure, without any wavering or change. That is the meaning of samadhi or concentration. So samadhi, we can also think of the word we used earlier of to harness, when the mind is harnessed to one specific object. When the mind notes, contemplates, stays with, 
a specific object com with complete steadiness, continuity, and firmness. This is samadhi. That object of concentration can either be material or immaterial, physical or mental. But if it's a, a mental object which is always, which won't stay still for very long, the samadhi can't be as highly developed. Using a material object which changes much more slowly allows for the development of a much stronger samadhi. So there's the letter, the meaning, and now the function or duty of samadhi. The function of samadhi is to provide a very secure, steady foundation for vipassana. When there is samadhi, the mind can just stick with whatever it needs to do. It can be completely patient. It can endure any experience in order to contemplate that experience, to, to watch and watch and watch until there is vipassana. Without this firmness and security, this firm, continual rootedness of mind, vipassana cannot take place. So the function or duty of samadhi is to serve as that very, very secure and steadfast foundation for vipassana. And so now you know the letter, the literal interpretation of samadhi, the definition, then its, its meaning and its function. We've discussed the word samadhi, and now we add the word pawana. Samadhi pawana means the development of something of spiritual value using the power of samadhi. Something that is spiritually valuable, that has more, has value for spiritual practice. This is developed, that the value of that thing is developed so that it has more and more value. And this is done using samadhi, the power of samadhi. So this is the meaning of samadhi pawana, to develop something that is spiritually valuable using samadhi. Now we'd like to mention some of the advantages or fruits of samadhi. Excuse me. Of samadhi, pawana. There are four of them usually mentioned. The first is the ability to have true happiness. When the ability, when there is ability in samadhi, pawana, any kind of dukkha, any pain or suffering can be driven away and immediately replaced with true happiness, with, with bliss. This is the first advantage of samadhi pawana. The second advantage 
is that Samanti Pawana will increase the abilities, the potentials of our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These various sense organs will be developed in their ability and power to the degree that we can even call them divine eye, divine ear, etc. You may have heard of these as certain magic powers which can be developed. We're not really interested in magic powers. It's sufficient just to develop the abilities of the senses so that they are above above normal, above average, so that they can be useful in the correct living of life. The magic powers aren't so important, but just to realize that through samati pawana, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind can have be greatly developed in their ability. This is the second advantage. The third advantage is that sati sampajanya is fully developed and perfected. Sati is mindfulness and sampajanya is wisdom in action. These two, mindfulness and wisdom in action, are absolutely necessary in life. When these two function together, they are able to to bring about correct living so that there are no problems arising. If either of these is missing, then there will be death. There will be tragic mistakes and death. Through samati pawana, mindfulness and wisdom in action are trained to the degree that they are perfected. This is one of the, this is the third advantage of samati pawana. For example, whenever a feeling or vetana or a perception, sanya, or some kind of thinking arises, if there is sati, mindfulness, and sampachanya, wisdom in action, right there with that feeling, perception, or thought, there will be no problem. The, the feeling or whatever will be correct. It won't be ignorant, misguided, and lead to dukkha. But whenever sati is slow, or wisdom in action is weak or insufficient, then that feeling may be unwise, the perception may be incorrect, and the thinking might be very foolish. And this will bring about dukkha. With sati sampachanya perfected, it is able to oversee the feelings, perceptions, and thinking so that no problems arise. In this way, life is lived correctly and there are no problems in life. This is the third advantage of samati pawana. The fourth and final advantage is that samati pawana can destroy the asava. The asava are the 
outflows of which turn into our attachments. This is the tendencies of the mind to attach to things as I and mine. Through samati bhavana, it is possible to observe the arising of the groups of clinging, the various things that we attach to as I and mine. We can see these arising, these things being attached to as that attachment is taking place. And this process can be watched and observed so that it is also the fading away of these groups of attachment is also seen. Whenever an object is attached to, there is the arising of that attachment and its ending. And so in this way, attachment is seen as impermanent, as unsatisfying, and as not-self. Those objects of attachment are seen as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self. As attachment in the objects of attachment is seen more and more clearly, more and more truthfully, then the outflows which lead to attachment dry up. And in this way, samati pawana, its power, is able to destroy these asava. When attachment no longer arises, then there is no selfishness. Without attaching to I and mind, there is no sense of self, of viewing things in terms of self, of ego-centric behavior or thinking. And then none of the gilesa, the defilement, arise. Without selfishness, there is no greed, anger, hatred, fear, or any of the other mental impurities. So this is the fourth advantage of samati bhavana. It cuts off all this, the, the defilement, the selfishness, and attachment as I and mine. Next, we'd like to give you some information that will help you to know whether the mind is concentrated or not. We'd like to mention three characteristics, the three characteristics of the concentrated mind. And then it will be very easy to tell whether the mind is concentrated or not by observing whether or not these characteristics are present and to what degree they are present. The first one is purity. The first characteristic of the concentrated mind is purity. This means that the mind is not defiled by any of the gilesa. The mind is not agitated or disturbed by any of the hindrances the, which were explained yesterday. The mind isn't defiled by any of these impurities, and so it is pure. Another word for this is the mind is rapatson or radiant, bright. The first characteristic is purity, brightness or radiance of mind. The second characteristic is that of 
stability, steadfastness. When all the mind's energy and power is gathered together and directed on one object, there is great strength, stability, and security in that. When the mind is fully established on one object, it is very strong, secure, and steadfast. This is the second characteristic, that of stability, steadfastness. The third characteristic is that the mind is ready. It is prepared to do whatever duty needs to be done. When the mind is truly prepared, then it is very active and alert. It's always prepared to do whatever mental activity is needed. It can perform the proper function correctly at the right time and in the right place. This preparedness or activity, activeness of mind is the third characteristic. This is obviously very important. We all value the ability to do ever in people to, to do whatever needs to be done at the right time, at the right place, in the right way. This is the third characteristic, activity, activeness, or preparedness. Next, we would like to talk about the Buddha's Samati Pawana, the Samati Pawana, which the Buddha taught and practiced himself. We're not interested in talking about Burmese meditation, Chinese meditation, Japanese, Thai, Sri Lankan, or anything like this. We're not interested in this teacher's, that teacher's, that master's, or this master's Samati Pawana, as so many people are stuck on these days. We're not interested in Suan Mok's way of Samati Pawana or any other places kind of meditation. We're not into these labels, these distinctions. All that we care about is the Buddha's form of Samati Pawana, the way of concentration development which the Buddha talked about, explained, advised to many, many people, and even said that, that he himself realized enlightenment through this thing called samati, or through this one kind of samati, pawana. This is what we're interested in not the labels and the attachments. The kind of samati pawana which the Buddha taught and practiced is what is here called anapanasati pawana, the mindfulness of breathing, development of mind, or for short just anapanasati, mindfulness on breathing or mindfulness of breathing. This is what he taught and practiced. Now this anapanasati as taught and practiced by the Buddha 
is made up of four areas or four groups, bases of things to be worked with. And each of these four groups or bases is divided into four steps. And four times four makes sixteen. So mindfulness of breathing as taught in practice by the Buddha is made up of sixteen steps. There are some people who complain that sixteen steps is too much. Too much for them to understand or practice or whatever. But we'd like to, we'd like to point out to you that the Buddha never spoke or taught about anything that was excessive. Nor did he speak about things which were incomplete. When the Buddha taught about something, he taught everything that needed to be known about it, and that's all. He didn't waste people's time with trivia or with extras. Nor did he speak incompletely. And so it is worth your time and effort to understand all 16 of these steps because this is the complete way of practice. Of course, there are easier ways, sort of simplified shortcuts for lazy people. And if you're interested in this, we'll talk about them as well. So we'll talk both about the complete way of practice and the, the easy way for, for those who are so inclined. First, we'll talk about the shortcut approach to mindfulness of breathing. In the shortcut, what one does is one develops sufficient concentration. doesn't have to be a lot of concentration. It doesn't have to be excessive, but just the necessary amount. And then use that concentration in order to contemplate impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, anicca, dukkha, anatta. When these things are contemplated sufficiently, then there will arise the understanding, the insight into, into them, into sunyata, voidness, and into datata, suchness. This realization of suchness is to the sufficient degree will will free the mind from all dukkha. And so this shortcut method will liberate the mind from suffering just the same. And it's merely doing the development of samadhi until there is an appropriate level, a level that is sufficient for contemplating anicca, dukkha, anatta in order to see these characteristics of all phenomena, in order to see dhatata and thereby eliminate dukkha. Notice that the key word here is sufficient or appropriate. It's the appropriate amount of samadhi and the appropriate sufficient realization of anicca, dukkha, anatta, sunyata, and Tatata. This is the shortcut approach. 
I'll, you'll, you'll notice that this approach is comprised of the first two groups or bases which make up the complete practice of anapanasati. We mentioned there are four. The shortcut uses the first base to develop sufficient samadhi and then jumps to the fourth base in order to contemplate the way things really are or to contemplate truth. These are the first and fourth bases of the complete practice of mindfulness of breathing. And now to describe the way of practicing this shortcut. We begin by noting the long breathing. Noting the long breathing and studying it. Then noting the short breathing. And then noting the fine, calm, relaxed breathing. Noting these things more and more until the body relaxes and becomes very calm and peaceful. In this way, the mind develops sufficient samadhi. Samadhi, or we could say moderate, a medium level of samadhi, which is appropriate and enough for vipassana. So by noting the long breathing, short breathing, and then fine breathing, enough samadhi arises. And then we study the things that are taking place within us, whether physical things or mental things, observing the various phenomena and processes, such as the breathing itself. Studying these, contemplating them as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. Using that samadhi to contemplate until there is genuine insight into the impermanence of the body and mind, of all these things, the inherent suffering within them, and the fact that they are not a selves and not soul. Through this way of contemplation and realization, then there is the understanding develops of <coughs> sunyata, voidness, that all things are void of I, and mind. The law of nature, the law of itapajayada, of cause and effect, is realized more and more completely, and thereby there is the realization of datada, suchness. When suchness is realized, then the mind is able to stay out of all dualistic thinking from getting caught up in dualistic perceptions, judgments, and traps. And so when the mind is no longer caught up in dualism, then it can, it can develop through higher and higher dhammas until the mind is totally free. This is the shortcut approach to mindfulness of breathing. This is an, a method of practice which is appropriate for people who are still living in the world. People who are still caught up in the world and attached to it can begin to use this method. Even those who are living at home, living 
a householder's life with families can practice the shortcut method and realize the higher dhammas such as dhatata, suchness, in order to the, free the mind of dualism, selfishness, and dukkha. And now we'd like to discuss the complete method of practice which is what the Buddha taught himself. It'll take a little time to go into this sufficiently, so please be patient and listen carefully. Don't, don't start thinking that, well, this is too much, I can't do it, da 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 because then you won't receive any benefits from listening. So just listen and do your best to understand, because this information can be of great youth. In the complete practice of mindfulness of breathing, there are, as we mentioned, four groups or bases. There are four basic things that need to be observed. The first is the body, this physical body of flesh, blood, bones, and so forth. This needs to be studied and understood because it's one of the things we attach to. The second base are the feelings, the things that are felt by the mind. These things which are felt by the mind are called the Vedana, and this is the second base. The third base or group regard is <coughs> regards the mind itself. The mind itself needs to be worked with, studied. And then lastly, there is the truth of all things. The fourth group is to contemplate the truth that are within all things. This is the truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta, sunyata, and datata, suchness, which frees the mind from dualism. So these are the four bases which must be contemplated in a complete practice of mindfulness of breathing. Really, it's, it's, it's quite simple. Now, the first base, that regarding the body, is made up of four steps. The first step is to note and contemplate the long breathing. To get to know the long breathing, to know what it is like, what characteristics it has. To study it until seeing what effects or results arise out of the long breathing. Find out what, what things are produced by the long breathing, what kind of influence the long breathing has. This is the first step. The second step is to do basically the same thing using the short breathing, to get to know what the short breathing is like, what its characteristics are, what its effects are, what influences it has upon the body. These are the first two steps. The third step is to contemplate the relationship between the different kinds of breathing, long, short, and also fast, slow, coarse, and fine, to contemplate the influence of these different breath kinds of breathing upon 
the, the physical body, to note this relationship between them. That is the third step. Long ago in India, they were well aware that there are two kinds of body. There is what is called the flesh body and what is called the breath body or the prana. And so in India, they studied the relationship between the flesh body and the breath body. And by the way, by breath body, we're not talking about something that is made up of breath and can walk around, fly, and do things like that. We're just talking about the breathing. And another word for this is the breath body or the prana. In India, they developed different practices of breath control, which were called pranayama. And the Buddha learned of these and then chose the form which he felt was most successful, which he was able to use himself, and that is anapanasati, as we're talking about now. This is the Buddha's form of pranayama. Now, by learning about this relationship between the breath body and the flesh body in step three, then it becomes possible to use the breathing to calm and relax the body. We've already learned what influences the breathing has, and now this knowledge can be used in order to make the body more and more calm. And then in this way, samadhi is developed. This is the first group of four steps, those related to the body. Now we can summarize this first group of steps by saying in it the ability to control the body, control the flesh body using the breath body is developed. This ability is developed. The word yama in pranayama means to command or commanding. So pranayama is commanding the breath or commanding, controlling by way of the breath. By studying the various influences which the breath body has upon the flesh body, the, it becomes possible to use the breathing to put the body in any state that is necessary. Now, this is something that has been practiced in India for centuries and still is today. All the different sects of yogis have their various forms of pranayama. And this has been this way for a long, long time. The exact techniques may differ, but the same basic practice is there of learning the different, how various kinds of breathing will influence the body and then controlling the breathing in order to develop certain states of the body. Now this is not something which we have to consider a purely Hindu or yogic thing. It's not even necessarily a purely spiritual practice. You can do it basically on your own. All you have to do is study the breathing very carefully to see the effect or influence of the many different kinds of breathing. If you breathe like this, what happens? If you breathe like that, what happens? 
study this extensively and then you will have the knowledge which will enable you to bring the body into certain states, whichever way you need the body to be. We can't really control the body directly. You can't just make the body be completely relaxed. No matter how much you want it to happen, it can't be done directly. But by using the breath body, the flesh body can be relaxed, which is the state that we need it to be in. It needs to be completely relaxed and calm. This can't be done just by wishing or wanting, but by understanding the relationship between the flesh body and the breath body, then that breath body can be used in order to bring the flesh body into the necessary condition. This is the form of pranayama which the Buddha taught. We may not have to go into all the details that certain other groups go into. We mainly need to know how the breath body can be used to calm the flesh body completely. This is the first group of four steps. When it is practiced very skillfully and successfully, then it will result in a body that is very, very calm, and then the mind will be very happy and joyful and very concentrated as well. Now there are advantages to pranayama, to controlling the breathing, which are not really spiritual or religious, that don't have anything really to do with dhamma. Nonetheless, they can be very useful in your life and you ought to be interested in them. For example, through the proper understanding and use of pranayama, of the breathing. It is possible to learn to breathe in such a way that extends one's lifespan span beyond what it normally would be. One's lifespan can be extended through the correct use of pranayama. Or on the other hand, through pranayama, one could, one could bring about death at any moment if that for some reason was necessary. One could cause the body to die using the prana, the breath. And then the breathe through pranayama, the various activities of life, our play, our work, our, our relationships, driving cars, washing dishes, playing sports, all of these different things that occur during our life can be done much, much better with pranayama. Using the breathing, these things can be done more successfully and skillfully. These are some advantage, advantages of pranayama which are outside the scope of spiritual practice itself. Nonetheless, you, may, you can use these to your advantage and ought to be interested in them. And now, after explaining the first, the first group of practices, which we call contemplation of the body, we move on to the second phase, which are 
the feelings or the vetana. The Buddha used the word vetana. We're not sure if this English word feeling has the same exact meaning, but vetana has very, very broad meaning. It means all the things which are felt by the mind. Or the real essence of this is to say the vetana are all the things to which we are enslaved. We make ourselves slaves to all these various things which we call the vetana. What this means is that in life, in experience, when seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and everything, there are things which are beautiful, attractive, soft, pleasant, and we willingly become slaves to these things. We spend our lives working, struggling, fighting, and competing over these things to which we are our slaves. Some, there are many, many examples of these, and we don't have to go into them all. But some of the most powerful feelings are the sexual feelings. The very powerful sexual feelings which keep people running around in circles, getting into all kinds of situations in their pursuit of these feelings, make it very clear what power and influence the feelings have over the mind and over life. Now what's kind of amusing is that ordinary people consider sexual feeling, feelings to be the highest and best that there are. Really, this is a very unknowledgeable, it's not a very knowledgeable understanding. In fact, there are feelings which are much higher, much more pleasant, more attractive, and happy than the sexual feelings. But many people have never experienced them, so they get stuck in, in sexual joys and pleasures. These highest kinds of feelings, which are much more attractive than the lower forms, are the very pleasant feelings that arise out of concentration, that come with concentration. When the mind is very, very concentrated, there are great, great levels of joy and bliss. Now these, of course, the mind will become enslaved to as well. But in the second base or group of steps of mindfulness of breathing, these very powerful feelings that arise from concentration are worked with. They are contemplated until the mind can get free of them, until it, it, it stops being enslaved to these feelings. When this can be done with these very, very powerful, high-level pleasant feelings, then lower levels of the Vedana are no problem. So by getting free of the very blissful states of concentration, one is also becomes liberated from the lower feelings such as the sexual feelings or unpleasant, painful feelings. And how this is done, we will go into now. So now, in this second group of steps, which is called contemplation of the Vedana, we work with these things so that they no longer enslave 
the mind. What happens when the mind is very, very concentrated is that two kinds of feelings will arise within that concentration. The first of these feelings is called PT, which is translated in a variety of ways, often as rapture. PT is a very excited, agitated feeling in which the mind is, is kind of bubbling over with its excitement in this great, this great happiness that is feeling this very powerful, excited joy. This is a very agitating kind of feeling. At the same time that there is PT, there is also sukha or happiness which, or we could also say bliss, which is a very subtle and relaxing feeling. It's, it's very, very happy, and it's also very peaceful. So it's a higher level of vetana. It's not as coarse as the PT or rapture. But when these two are present at the same time, they cannot, they are not both Felt because the cruder, agitated PT obscures the more gentle and peaceful sukha or bliss. Now, what we do is, in, is we examine these two kinds of feelings and get to know them much the way we got to know the breathing earlier. We get to know the different characteristics of these feelings see what kind of influences they have, what they do to the mind, what kind of things they cause in the mind. If these feelings are, are let out of control, especially PT, it can lead to various defiled kinds of thinking. It can lead to certain kinds of thinking which is not useful or which even causes dukkha. And so these need to be understood. So in step five, PT is studied very carefully. And then in step six, sukha, bliss, is studied. Then in seven, the influences that these feelings have upon the mind, the way they condition, the way they affect the mind, is studied. When all of this is understood very completely, then it is possible to control these feelings, to make them calm, to calm them away if that is necessary, or to oversee them, to govern them in a way that they are useful, so that the feelings can be used to further the mind in its development. So the second group of steps is made up of just these four steps, studying rapture, studying bliss, studying their influence upon the mind, and then learning, contemplating how to, how to control them so that they can be, they are useful and never lead to any problems. To be useful, we have to be out of our, we have to be liberated from them. As long as we are enslaved to them, they can pull us into various problems and dukkha. So this is the, the second group of steps. Once again, it's, it's not very many. It's not, no big deal to practice them. And this is what makes up the contemplation of Vedana or feelings.
Now we come to the third group of steps. When we've practiced with the Vedana, so that the mind is no longer enslaved to the Vedana, but so the Vedana can be used. This means that we're now ready to work with the mind directly. Before that, the mind was always being influenced by these feelings. But now that it is free of them, we can really work with the mind. So the thing to do now is to examine all the different possible mind states that can arise, to fully experience and learn about what the mind is like in this state, that state, or whatever kind or state of consciousness. In getting to know all these kind of mind states, the mind continues to develop. That's the ninth step. The tenth step or second one of this group is to make the mind glad, delighted. It's to, using the feelings, learn how to make the mind happy, delighted, glad, joyous in various different ways. This is a way of getting very subtle and precise control over the how the mind feels. And this can be very useful in the further practice. Next, the third step of this group, or the eleventh overall, is to concentrate the mind. To now, now that the mind is, is no longer enslaved to any of the feelings, to develop different levels and types of concentration at will, to be able to move in and out of these things very agilely, very skillfully. And then the last one is, now that all these various abilities have been developed, the ability to know all the different kinds of mind states, then to delight the mind and then concentrate the mind, this is used in order to liberate the mind from attachments. The mind is always getting stuck to things, attaching to them as I and mind. Now there is enough control, enough understanding for the mind to really let go of these things. And this letting go of attachment is the final step of the, the group relating to the mind, which we call contemplation of mind. And now we come to the fourth group of steps, which are those that <clears throat> deal with Dhamma, or we can say the truth of all things. The first of these four steps is the contemplation of impermanence. Now that the mind has been highly tuned and finely tuned through all the previous steps, the mind is, has a very refined level of concentration in order to contemplate impermanence. So then the mind observes, it focuses on, it contemplates, it just looks and looks and looks at things until seeing their impermanence. It looks at all the things happening within, the breathing, the feelings, the states of mind. These are contemplated until they are seen as impermanent. And not only internal things are seen as impermanent, but this can also then be directed to external things. If we see that all these things within are in turn impermanent, then it becomes obvious that external things are impermanent. 
And if everything we observe is seen to be impermanent, then we realize that everything, whether we've seen it or not, experienced it or not, is impermanent. And impermanence, the realization of impermanence, develops in this way until the point that is, it is absolutely clear that all things are impermanent, that is, except for Nibbana. The state of Nibbana is not permanent, but all things which have the nature of being conditioned, of arising through causes, have the nature, the characteristic of being impermanent. And when this impermanence is seen, then it becomes obvious that anything which is impermanent can in no way satisfy. And so this leads to the realization of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And then anything that cannot satisfy which is, that means we can't control it to give us what we want. That means that all these things are not self. And so the realization of impermanence, this contemplation deepens until there is the realization of sunyata, itapajayata, the law of cause and effect, and datata. Now in the, in his talk, the Buddha called this the contemplation of impermanence. And we can, what this means is that all these realizations grow out of the contemplation of impermanence. And to realize impermanence in the deepest possible way is a realization that includes dukkha, anatta, sunyata, datata, and itapajayata. This is to really contemplate impermanence. When impermanence is contemplated extensively and completely in this way, then there it mo we move to the next step of this final group, which is the fading away of attachment. Once all things are seen as impermanent, we, we just suddenly realize, oh, there, there's nothing worth attaching to. And so with this realization, attachment fades away. And this attachment, this fading away, is contemplated. Next, with, as attachment fades, it ends. And so, in step 15, we contemplate the cessation, the ending of attachment. And then finally, when all attachment has ended, then there we realize that there's nothing anymore which is I or mine. There is no clinging to anything. And so there is the throwing back of all these things, all these former objects of attachment. They are thrown back. They are given up to nature. There's, the mind realizes now very clearly that nothing is I or mine, and it gives it all up. And so this is the four steps of the last group, the final group which deals with the the profound and ultimate truths of all things. This is called Dhammanu Patana, the contemplation of Dhamma. So that's the entire 16 steps of the complete practice of mindfulness of breathing. Now that you've heard them all, whether you think that it's a lot or too much or whatever is your own opinion.
what you need to realize is that the things we need to know are quite extensive. In the earlier talks, we talked about dukkha, the cause of dukkha and the end of dukkha. Now, this is why we need to study the body and the feelings. These are the things which are the causes of dukkha. These are the, the things on which dukkha is founded. And so we need to study them. And then there is the mind, that which experiences dukkha. And if we're going to understand suffering and its cause, we must understand the body, feelings, and mind. And then if we're going to get out from this problem of dukkha, if the mind is going to be freed of it, then there needs to be the understanding of dhamma, of truth, of datata. And so really, if we see it in this way, actually, the, the ability to summarize this, everything into 16 steps, is really quite marvelous. The things that need to be studied are incredible. There are all, think of all the many complex experiences in our lives. And that we can summarize this down to just 16 steps, which when practiced correctly, can clear up the whole mess. Then you'll realize that these 16 steps are not in any way excessive. It's sufficient, it's enough to, to completely solve this problem of dukkha. And so we hope now that this is clear to you and that you will be interested in carrying on with this practice. If at this point you still think that 16 steps are too much, well then you can always use the shortcut and then you won't have wasted your time in coming to Suan Mok. Buddhism will still be of great value to you. And so we hope that we've been able to make these things understandable and we, it took us a little extra time since there are quite a few things to say. We hope this is all useful for you and that you can succeed in this duty of eliminating attachment, selfishness, and dukkha. And so on this point, we will end today's talk. <laughs>